Hi everyone, it's Andy here. Welcome to this special New Year's edition of Montica's Spotlight series. Today we're going to circle back to three of our most popular podcasts from the last year or so and fish out a couple of highlights that we think are really important to underscore as we enter 2024. The first is from our episode on compounders and what defines them. And here Chris and I discuss how the really great businesses in the world can proactively cultivate investments in growth options and adjacencies to deliver long-term sustained growth rates that are often underappreciated by the market. But I just want to pick up on one last point or one more point. We were talking about the sustainability of growth here and going out beyond a decade. It's not then a foregone conclusion that these businesses after five or 10 years are going to become later stage declining businesses. And in fact, there's been examples even within these businesses over over history, over decades already, where they've continued to find new legs of growth. And I think that's also something that's really exciting about these compounders is that when we sit here today and we look out to 2030, um, there are potentially other legs of of growth that might happen beyond that that horizon too. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, what's obviously if 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 you own a wonderful compounder with a you know a long you know decade plus runway of of sustainable growth, I mean that's super powerful right there. Um, in terms of you know when you think about the the level of earnings where you'll end up at you know, in year 10, that's, that's wonderful. But yeah, as you say, what's even better than that is a, a compounder business who can, um, you know, make small, uh, sort of targeted investments throughout the 10 year cycle into call them growth options. If you like, um, think of, you know, adjacent businesses, um, that creates cross selling cross selling opportunities or, adjacent businesses that leverage existing advantages in new ways. Um, and you can, you know, cultivate these growth options such that, you know, by the time year 10 comes and maybe the the core business, the kind of was the, the growth engine for the last 10 years, maybe it's, it's starting to run out of steam. But by that stage, you've cultivated a whole bunch of new businesses, which are really just ramping up. And, and so, yeah, the world's very, very best businesses are pretty skilled at doing this like amazon is is like the really obvious example um that you know just started out selling books and you know my god look at look at them now you know and especially with with aws and and a whole um you know prime and a whole bunch of other businesses that sort of just came out of thin air along the way um, but are now like overwhelmingly the biggest driver of value going forward and maybe in a less obviously exciting way, you mentioned Visa and MasterCard before, both of those businesses are benefiting from that structural trend of, um, of you know, cash to cashless payments. Um, but that there've been additional investments and adjacencies they've been able to benefit from along the way, whether it's peer-to-peer payments, whether it's, you know, business-to-business payments, um, even going from card to, to I guess, you know, contactless uh, tap payments and and payments that are on, you know enabled by by your phone. So there's been new legs of growth that they've been able to add to to um, you know just the, the the core business 
credit card and debit card businesses over time. Right, yeah, exactly. Okay, now speaking of great businesses successfully expanding into adjacencies, we go to Montica's stock story episode on KKR. And here, Armit and Chris describe the recent evolution of KKR's business that has made it so valuable today. And of course, we think it's still really undervalued by the market at present. What it's actually evolved into over the last you know, decade plus um, and sort of really sort of inflated in the last you know, several years is, is a business that addresses the alternate asset management space, which is sort of a blend of not just um, take privates or um, leverage buyouts, but across a swath of, uh, of investment um, end markets from credit to real estate, to infrastructure, to, 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 um, to obviously to, to businesses um, in, in varying industries. And so they've, they've actually typically private, typically private investments, right? These yes. aren't things you can find listed on an exchange, for example. That's right. That's right. That, yeah. that, that's kind of the common thread. Like a, a lot of these, bit, like almost all of their strategies are private strategies, um, where you know the the underlying asset, you know, business, um, etc., is is housed off the market, and and and, the, and that gives them a lot of flexibility to do uh, a, a lot of um, a lot of interesting restructurings and uh, combinations and and also um you know run different capital structures and and also just hold them in in different vehicles uh so you said hold so, them in different vehicles how how does how does kkr actually typically make money here they they're not necessarily going around taking their shareholders money and investing in all of these companies they do something they do they do something a little bit different Yeah, yeah. So, so they they obviously they have, like depending on um, where you want to allocate funds. So if if you have if you have an objective around sort of, uh, I guess you start almost with the um, with the horizon of your of your capital. If you have, if you have sort of a long horizon, long term capital, um, you know you, you'd give it to KKR. They'd, they'd put it into a into a longer um, duration strategy, which would be invested in a business so they so, so kkr is actually pooling the money into the funds and presumably they may fees off that yeah exactly exactly if you if you wanted to get a, a exposure to um you know any of kkr strategies be that growth equity or real estate infrastructure alternate credit leverage credit traditional private equity um and, and increasingly you know myriad of, of varying other strategies you'd you would invest in one of their funds alongside a bunch of other investors, um, and then KKR, you know, given their unique vantage point across you know multiple regions and jurisdictions and industries, um, and their team, which is which is positioned all over the world, they would then allocate, um, or they would then invest that money depending upon the strategy right. that that you had that you had um sort of op- that you had invested in. Right. So they're pulling that money, and uh, they're really a big fee fee machine. Um, look, you, you go into some detail in your recent article uh, and you boil down uh, the investment thesis here around five reasons why KKR is an attractive investment. And just quickly, you hit on um, the massive market opportunity that they have 
um, the private wealth or the retail channel, Asia being a big growth story for them. Um, you talk about why KKR is actually has actually become a better, more reliable business, and uh, you, you tile that up and bring it all together by uh, showing, demonstrating why the stock's actually really cheap. Okay, next we turn to our Spotlight series episode on Montica's recent white paper titled Three Pillars of Active Management, Concentration, Patience and Discipline. Here Chris and I discuss the academic research that supports the hypothesis that really concentrated portfolios with low portfolio turnover are characteristics that are overwhelmingly represented in the best performing portfolios historically. Uh, now of course this is near and dear to our hearts because as most listeners probably know, Montica runs a very concentrated portfolio with our top 10 holdings currently accounting for 74% of our total exposure. And we also run very low annual turnover, which is currently running at 26%. So just setting that scene, because if, if you accept kind of that premise that going forward, uh, you know, we could be heading into a market that's characterized sort of more by, you know, winners and losers versus, um, you know, a, a sort of a, a period where everything just rises together. Um, then if that's true, then, you know, active management becomes relatively more important uh, for investors to consider uh, as they build their portfolios. And so I, I, I love what this white paper's done because it, you know, far from just, you know, making some baseless assertions about, um, you know, what works and what doesn't, um, this white paper really assembles a body of academic research um, that shares a set of empirical observations um, about what has actually worked um, in, in the active management space. And it, it basically comes down to three factors that we look at. Of course, we give it away in the title of the paper, concentrated, patient <laughs> and disciplined. Um, and so I thought, uh, Chris, you, you have written about these uh, topics in the past, but it, it's I think it's actually really powerful just to assemble them all together, all together in one one report. And I thought we could just step through each one of these. Um, and so the first is concentrated. And so we're talking about sort of portfolio concentration here. Um, why is a concentrated portfolio important, and and how is that shown to be uh, relevant? Uh, when analysing the returns of active managers? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the best place to start here is, is with those, the, at least one of the giants that we alluded to in the introduction. And it's, uh, there was a study conducted by um, an academic, Martin Kramers and his associate, Anka Parikh, back in 2016. They took 3,000 equity funds over a span of 20 six years and analyze the performance of all of those all of those fund managers. Um, they then cut the numbers in various ways. And what they what they discovered was that there was um, a certain select set of managers who on the average outperformed. And that's that's a that's that's actually a very important and meaningful statement because I think what we've heard over many, many years is that active managers as a group do much worse than the average performance of the stock market. 
um, and a lot of the benchmark indices, especially after their clients pay, pay fees. But what these researchers were able to show is that there was a group of um, stock pickers and they happened to be the most concentrated or the most different in the way that they selected stocks. And they were able to consistently outperform the market over long periods of time. Uh, and the way, that, the way that they looked at that, that, that um, make, the makeup of those portfolios and of those fund managers was to calculate a statistic that they called active share. And active share just showed how differently the portfolios were invested compared to, um, compared to the, the, the broader stock market. Um, and it's pretty much synonymous with having a concentrated portfolio. We have a more concentrated portfolio and fewer names in there. Um, the, the corollary to that is that the portfolio looks and feels very, very different to um, to a broad-based diversified portfolio like uh, like a stock market index. And they found that the uh, the top quintile of fund managers, based on that active share statistic, the most concentrated with an active share of 90% or more, typically actually outperformed significantly over long periods of time. And when you break it down to a per annum result, they on average outperformed by about a percentage point per annum. But what's interesting about that is when you look at what that adds up to or multiplies up to over a, a very long period of time, like the, the study was conducted over. And so if you think of a million dollars being invested back in 1990, and then growing with the market's performance through to 2015. An investor would turn that million dollars into about $10 million, which is a great result. Um, if they were then to invest only in that group of um, fund managers who were the most concentrated, their $1 million would have turned into $12 million. So they would have added another $2 million to their, you know, to their pension pots or to their savings over that period of time. And I think what's really special about that is that this isn't just a statistic that you can calculate in hindsight. This is something that you can identify in a portfolio and a fund manager um, as an investor before you actually get going on the journey. So it's something that you can see ex ante, something you can see in advance, and it's something that, that can guide investors' decision-making when it comes to who potentially are the, the, um, the fund managers that are, that are going to be able to be best positioned to outperform and add that extra, you know, two million dollars over a over a couple of decades. Yeah, and it's it's we're not saying that any uh, portfolio manager who runs a concentrated portfolio, of course, will be in that category of you know the very high outperformers. But I think I think what this analysis says is that if you're not running a concentrated portfolio, then the odds of you ending up in that sort of buck cohort of very high outperformance is is the, the odds are really stacked against you. you, you yeah, that's right. Very little, if any, chance of that happening. So to your point, you know, um, an investor who's selecting a fund manager, um, this is something that you can see very easily ahead of time. Um, and, you know, it, it at least puts you in, it gives you a shot, right, of being in that cohort, being with that cohort of managers that do um, really outperform uh, over the longer term. Yeah, so that's it. the first factor. The, the second factor um, 
which is related is is called patience um and you know successful or well, the research has shown that successful active funds hold positions for longer so step us through that second factor yeah so when kramer's uh came back to his research some years later he started he, he cut the, the the data a different way and he took that cohort of managers who were the most concentrated and the most different from the stock market and he looked inside that to try and find um you know if there were any other factors that might explain their performance or identify who the the top performers are and it turned out that if within that group of the most concentrated managers you then looked at the most patient managers um so the managers that hold on to their stocks for the longest periods of time on average. And I'll give you a sense for what that means. Um, you know, we, we've, we've heard a lot about the average hold period for stocks um, uh, falling over many, many years now um, to the point where I think the average hold period on the, on the New York Stock Exchange is measured in, in months. Well, if you were to look at the concentrated fund managers who hold on to their stocks on average for more than two years, it's only that group of the most concentrated and the most patient managers that on average outperformed. So once you got within that bucket of the most concentrated mm -hmm. managers, if you weren't a manager or in that group of the most patient managers, on average, you were underperforming, which means that all of the, out, the, the big returns and the outperformance was being generated by the uh, the managers that were that had both of those characteristics of patience and concentration put together, and again it added significantly to returns. So the per annum returns go up by a percentage point each year. So now we're at two percentage points above what the market is doing. If you can grab those managers that are both patient and concentrated, and when you run that out over the twenty six year um, horizon over which the study took place. Now you find that that million dollars invested in 1990 would have turned into $16 million by 2015. So so you by finding the most, if I just go through those numbers again, if you invest in the market, you turn one into 10. If you can find the most concentrated managers on average, you'll turn one into 12. If within that set, you then discard the guys that are trading around their positions the most and just hold uh, hold investments with the, the most patient of those concentrated managers, now you've turned a million into 16 million. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a material uplift in the capital appreciation over time. And again, um, being patient is, is one of those characteristics that you can find in fund managers ahead of time. So it's quite easy to look at their portfolios, look at their books and understand how long they hold their positions for on average. And Leopard doesn't really change its spots too often. And those those fund managers that are the most most patient stay that way and on the average outperform even more uh, than just being a concentrated fund manager. Yeah, and I'll underscore again, you can think of this in in sort of reverse terms as well where if, if if you're with a manager whose portfolio is not concentrated and has very high turnover so short-term duration holding periods um 
then the odds of you ending up in that sort of outperforming cohort are, are basically zero. You sort of, you know, yeah. you can't really, you can't really get there. Okay, that's it for this month. Uh, hope you've enjoyed that. Happy New Year, and we'll be back next month with an episode under our usual format. Bye for now.